Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. The longest part of the night rests just in front of the most brilliant part of dawn. Sunrise is impressive, but just before dawn is where all the beauty of a new day rests. In life, it's the darkness just before the dawn that's the hardest part to step into, but that's also where the brilliance is found. And in this new study of 1 Peter, we'll discover the blessings that can come in the darkest nights of our soul. Well, good morning once again, and good morning to those who are tuning in for the very first time. Uh, my name's Sam, and I'm so glad to have you here. If uh, this is your first time here in a few weeks, we are actually in the third part of a series leading up to Easter in 1 Peter. If you're in-house, you've got a red Bible in front of you. You can find that on page 925 and 26. That's where we'll be today. Um, in fact, that's where we've been the last two days because it's a very tiny book. So it's just on that one page that we're working through. But 925 is where we are, and uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2 today. And this series is all about, as Peter would have it, uh, how quickly dawn is really approaching. It's coming to us, it's moving in upon us, and it's bringing us new life right now, even though it's not fully here yet. And speaking of quickly approaching, uh, I mentioned spring earlier. How many, anybody going to take a spring break trip this year? Just raise your hand if you're going to take We've got a few in here going to take, some going to the mountains, some going to the beach, uh, and I know I've heard some are camping. Any campers in here? Oh, we've got a few campers in here. Camping's a weird thing, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is a bizarre thing. All the others, it's fine, you know, go to the beach, like sit on the beach all day, have a nice place to rest at night, go get some good seafood, whatever. But camping is like you work your entire life to get the bed that fits you just right, right? You know, you're just doing everything you can to get that work. You get the chair that you love, and you come home, and you stick your feet up. That's wonderful. You do all of these things, and then one day you look at your spouse, and you're like, hey, what if we live like we're homeless for a week? Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, like, it just seems like a beautiful idea. Just give it all up and just sacrifice it. Go away. I, I, don't, I don't do it. And here's the, the reality is I'm not judging you. I'm really not. Uh, my wife was one of the ones that raised her hand in the back because it is a thing that we love to do. We love going camping. Uh, but I really started to question this last Thanksgiving when my brother invited us to go camping the Tuesday night before Thanksgiving. Now, you may not remember what it was in terms of temperature around here last Thanksgiving, on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, but I do. It was 22 degrees that night. And did we stay in a camper with a heater? No, that's where he stayed. We stayed in something called a cowboy cabin, which is nothing more than wooden walls and, like, ventilation up top, which I don't know why you'd need the ventilation in 22 degrees, but that's what we had. And, and all I'm doing all night long is thinking, is my 11-month-old still breathing? Right? We're, I got an 11 month old, a six year old, my wife and I, and we're hanging out in this, camp, uh, in this tent, or in this cabin, I guess they call it a cabin, dying. And I'm, I'm, I'm constantly, this is the irony behind it all, the person we were with, like, you know, it's going to be cold tonight. Would you like a heater? And I'm like, sure. We drive 20 minutes one way to get a heater and bring it back and plug it into this space that, again, has ventilation at the top. It did nothing for us all night long, but our faces are glued up to this heater. And did it matter that it was 20 degrees, 22 degrees outside? No, it didn't, it didn't matter. Like, we were fine with that. Why? Because my brother was there, and we wanted to have some sense of connection and family, right? Did it matter that I was 35 minutes away from home, and, and could I come home? No, I was going to stay there, right? 
didn't matter that my dog was warmer than I was in my house at home 35 minutes away. No, I was going to stay there with my brother. And that's why I did it. I, you know, I thought about it later. I'm like, why in the world am I doing this? I just had this going on in my mind all night long. It's because I want to be with my family. Even though the next morning I got up and with my family and was like, how did you sleep? I'm like, or he said, how did you sleep? I was like, terrible. It was 22 degrees. You remember that? And I'm like, how did you sleep? He's like, it got so hot in there. I had to turn off the heater. And I wanted to punch him in the face right then. I just was so close to doing it. I'm like, I can't believe you just said that to me and my six-month-old who slept outside all night long. But it was family, and we were connected. And this is, this is the reason why, you know, I think my family, and maybe you too, you kind of do this from time to time, go camping, throw yourselves in awkward spaces. I mean, even if you stay in a hotel, you know, other people have slept in that bed. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but that's a reality. People's heads have been where your head is, and you still sleep there, right? But sometimes we do this, and, and truth is, when we go camping, this is, this is really true, the camping experience is always made better the closer we can bring it to home. All right, if I've got a, a shelter over my head, if I have some semblance of a seat, even if it's just vinyl and bars, and if I have carbs, that's where we're going, right? Because the home is always where the carbs are. Like, that's the reality. So I've got my, my, my marshmallows at home, or my marshmallows at night. I've got the fire. I've got this shelter over my head. And I can create this sort of semblance of home right there in that space. And that's the importance of moments like is that it's kind of a home away from home. It's this image of home, and it reminds us of home. And every single person that I have ever talked to who's gone camping, at the end of it, what are they most excited about? Their own bed. That's what they're most excited about, right? They're like, that was a great experience, but I cannot wait to sleep in my own bed and shower with soap and warm water. This is reality. Every time we leave camping, we always have this longing to be home to be back into that space that's familiar and grounded and all of those things. And as I'm thinking about this particular image, this image came to mind as I looked at this second chapter because this is where Peter is going to take us. It's kind of a camping expedition here in the first part of the second chapter of Peter. Through all of the first chapter, and if you've been with me, you know this, Peter's been using this image of new life, new birth, inheritance. He's saying you've been born into something new. You've been born into a new family. But he shifts the image just a little bit in chapter 2 today to talk to us about a home. And it's not a normal home like the, the grounding we have. It's really like a home away from home, a home to remind us that I'm coming home to a better home. And this is what we're made into as Peter gets into this. And like I said, we spent a lot of time last week talking about the new life. And that's, if you're looking in your Bibles with me, you'll see that's actually where Peter starts this week. He does start with the new life. And in fact, he starts with the same word that we started with that last week. And for those of you who are here, what's that word? Therefore. Remember this? And every time you see therefore in Scripture, what do you ask yourselves? Why is it there, right? Or what's it there for? That's what we ask ourselves when it comes up. And Peter does this again, beginning of chapter 2. Therefore, get rid of all malice, all guile, all insincerity in your life, all envy, all slander. Get rid of all of those things. Therefore. Why? why? What's the therefore? Why is it there for? It's there because you've been born anew. Verse 23 of chapter 1 says this. You have been born anew in God. And because you've been born anew, therefore, get rid of all these other things in your life extinguish them from your life, live in a different way. And he continues on in verse 2 and kind of expounds this out. He says, you're kind of like newborn infants who long for pure spiritual milk, so by it you may grow into your salvation. So lay aside all of these harmful things in your life that are going to do you no good whatsoever and instead crave this pure spiritual milk 
that God has for you, and it will settle your souls, and it'll create this happiness in your life, right? This is what holiness does for us. And so, so he's kind of pulling us down this trajectory. He's saying, you get new life. When you get new life, you get a new family. And when you get a new family, what comes after that? A new home, a new house, a new space, a dwelling that you can live into. And that's where we go in verse 3, if you're following along. He says in verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, if you've experienced new life, if you experience the new family, come to him. And then he describes who the him is. He says, come to him. He's a living stone. Though rejected by mortals, human beings, he's been chosen and precious in God's sight. And of course, right here, Peter is talking about Christ. He's talking about Jesus who sits at the foundation of our faith, who other scriptural writers and, and uh, even the prophets would describe as the chief cornerstone. He's the cornerstone of the house that God is building in this space. And, and that's where Peter starts. He says, Come to this living stone, though rejected by mortals, chosen by God, and precious in his sight. And now Peter's going to get, he's going to kind of intertwine his own testimony a little bit. Some of you know this about Peter. Peter's name wasn't always Peter. It was Simon before it was Peter. And Jesus looked at Peter one day and he said, you're going to be named Peter. And what does Peter mean? Rock. Right? It's a rock. This is what Peter is. He's a rock. And, and so Peter is going to incorporate a little bit of what God has done in his life into your life. And he's saying in the next verse, like living stones yourself. Right? So Christ is the living stone. He's the cornerstone. But I want you to hear me a minute, Peter says. We're all stones. We're living stones that God has made alive. And what we have to do is enter into this space, Peter goes on to say, letting yourselves be built into a spiritual house to become a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Immediately what you and I are becoming is the dwelling place for God on earth. You know, to use the Old Testament image here, Peter's saying we are the building of the temple. It's not brick and mortar, it's not stones, it's not steeples, it's not any of those things. We become those stones that, that develop the holy habitation where God will dwell in this world. And we allow ourselves to be built in this way, not alone, but together in this place. And what's interesting about the image that Peter uses here, particularly about a spiritual house and living stones, is that he's trying to suggest to us that we become this place for belonging in the world. We become a place where we can all belong where we can all experience the smells of heaven, where we can all experience the comforts of heaven, where you and I, even while in this world, can get a taste of heaven in a home away from home. We come into this place, we do life together, we serve together, we give together, we pray together, we do all of these things, and in the midst of that gathering, we get the opportunity to become the holy habitation of God, where God will dwell amongst God's people, and God will continue to expand God's kingdom on this earth. And as we come together, what happens is we get built up stone upon stone, stone upon stone, living stones built together. And in the context of this, Christ shows up here. Christ heals in this space. God, uh, Christ saves us in this place and transforms our lives in this place. And this place, again, not brick and mortar, but us, becomes the place where Christ can show up in other people's lives where others around us can see the outpost of heaven right here, right now, can get a demonstration of what that looks like right now. Even though we're far from home, even though we're far removed from God, Peter says the community becomes the place where others get to see this happen. And this community, as it comes together, it really does feel the longing of our heart. I, in fact, there was a, a, he's a professor at Yale now, but his name was uh, Kyle Dugdahl, and he's an architecture professor at Yale. 
but he did his thesis work, his master's thesis work at Harvard. And he did it on the way in which architecture always tries to fill the void of the garden in our life. It's a really interesting idea that he has. He, he talks about the way in which ever since humanity left this space of perfection in the garden, architecture has become the way in which we try to kind of reground ourselves in perfection. Our buildings, our spaces, our gathering environments, they all become this. And, and when we were in Genesis 1, of course, we rested in that perfect habitation. But after that, after we were driven out, we rapidly are trying to recover it with all of these different things in our lives. And architecture sort of becomes a defense mechanism. And I want you to see what he says. We'll put it up on the screen here. He says this about all of our attempts. And I found it so fascinating. This is from his thesis at Harvard. He says, but the city architecture, the, the polis, whatever it is, is always a poor substitute for the Garden of Eden. Architecture performs at best the role of fig leaves covering humanity's exposure. But in the end, it is perhaps not so much a cure as it is an expression of humanity's sickness. What's he saying in this space? He's saying that there's essentially this emptiness that is in all of our hearts. It's an aching that we can't shake, and we try to fill it up. Right? It's why you love going home, because home for you has been a space where you can try to fill up the emptiness of, of this in your life. But he's saying at best, our homes, our attempts, our architecture, wherever it is, these sacred spaces in our life, they're merely fig leaves trying to cover our exposure to sin. They're not the fullness of it. And what Peter is saying in the building together of living stones is that we finally have a solution to the longing of our hearts. We finally have this place where we can be grounded and we can, instead of living in isolation, we can choose to live in cooperation. And when we choose this option of living together, then we can find the longing of our hearts met. But when we avoid this, when we live our lives in isolation, when we choose isolation, what ends up happening is we miss our heart's longing and we miss out on our place of belonging in life. But the church is different. The church should be different. The church should be that place of belonging, not, not made with external realities like steeples and stained glass, not made with external realities like pulpits and, 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 and properties, but instead it's a place where we can become the connection for belonging, where you and I can become those living stones, as Peter would want to argue. This is the gathering of those who found a place to belong, and belonging is always, as I said earlier, a unique exercise in mutuality. It's a unique exercise in both giving and taking. It's not one-sided, right? If you're only here to receive, you've missed out. You're not belonging, and you probably don't feel that sense of belonging. If you're only here to give and to serve, then you've missed out, and you probably don't feel that sense of belonging that the church should be. It's a place of mutuality. And the reason I say that, and, and it's very interesting how Peter might have been developing this concept of the living stones, because as I've mentioned already, Peter wrote this in Rome. And when Peter got to Rome, he got introduced to all new sorts of architecture. And in Rome, and some of you are, you know, more knowledgeable in building than even me, for sure, like, you know this, there are these amazing Roman arches. And the beautiful part about the Roman arches is that the, the stone, each one of them that makes up the arch, gives and receives. And it's in the giving and receiving in perfect balance that keeps the arch maintained. It's not concrete that holds them together in many cases. These arches can stand for over 2,000 years, and they do so because they both give and they receive. 
They give that weight and support to the stones next to them, and they receive that weight and support to the stones next to them. And they live in that constant reality of mutuality. And Peter, of course, is sitting in Rome, and he's seeing all this beautiful new architecture as he's writing this letter down. And he's pulling this image to the surface when he calls back to you and I and says, you all are like living stones that hold on to each other, that hold each other up, that provide this sense of mutuality as you go through life. And that's what I want to ask, I want you to ask yourselves today. In what way am I experiencing mutuality in the context of this community? Am I just giving? And if you're just giving, then you may be leading into that space in your life of burnout where you just feel abused and used and all of those things and you don't feel belong like you belong. If you're just receiving, then you feel worthless because it's just like I'm soaking things up but I don't have a place to get active. And anytime this balance, this, this careful balance gets off kilter, we start to feel, or, or really, we start to lose that sense of belonging in our hearts. We start to lose the way that we can belong in this. So where are you at? Are you giving? Are you receiving? Are you giving? Are you receiving? And how can you start to find the balance in your life? Because if you're leaning one way or another, then you're going to feel out of place. You're not going to feel that sense of belonging. And your emotional state doesn't matter in this place. Your emotional state can be anywhere, and you might still be able to find that sense of belonging. You could be hurting or helpless. You can be mad or angry or indignant or any of those things. You can belong even when you don't understand or believe, as long as there is that giving and receiving. Your emotional state shouldn't change any of this reality, but you still need both of these components in order to survive. And belonging will always draw you into that space of mutuality. It will always draw you back into that space of balance. And, we, and, and what this means, practically speaking, is when you're here and you're weak, then others can lean in and be your strength. When you're here and you're strong, you can lean in and be others' strength when they're weak. We have this sense of working together and navigating every season of life, no matter where any of us are individually, because of this mutuality. We know that in some of life's hardest times, somebody has me. Somebody's got me. Somebody is there to be with me. And in beautiful times, I can be there for someone else. I can give myself to someone else because I belong to a group who needs us. And you don't have to be in this space invisible. You don't have to be in this space uh, someone who just sits back. But you do need to be in this space someone who gives someone who receives both in and is open to open yourself in, up in that way. Because belonging is found when you're willing to let others in and let your gifts out. To let others in and to let your gifts out. And this is a tricky spot, particularly the letting others in. I want to start there. Because what letting others in does is it means that in some way we have to be vulnerable with where we actually are emotionally. We have to be vulnerable to allowing someone else to see what our life is actually going through and how they can be supportive to us in that moment. And so letting others in in that space is an important yet also a very difficult place to get to because we cross the threshold of vulnerability in order to fully receive. And of course, on the other end, letting our gifts out comes with its own set of baggage because so oftentimes we may be sort of uh, hesitant to let those gifts out because of our own confidence, because of where we stand, because of we don't understand if people will receive those gifts or be welcoming of those gifts or if we'll actually be welcomed in the community when we offer those gifts. And so that in and of itself takes a sort of self-confidence that has to rise up. And in both of these environments, whether you're crossing the threshold of vulnerability or crossing the threshold of self-confidence, 
We have to cross these thresholds in order to get to the place of letting others in and letting our gifts out. And this can, if we can do this, this can become the place of the perfect balance between give and take. The perfect place where you and I can see growth happen in our lives as followers of Christ, where we can truly become the holy habitation where God is calling us to be and seeing the kingdom of God grow up. And of course, growth is a central reality to all of what Peter's talking about, and growth is a central reality to your discipleship journey that you never should stop growing in this way. I mean, Peter already alluded to this in verse 1, lay aside all those evil things so that you can drink pure milk, so that you can grow. You can grow into your salvation. You can grow into who God wants you to be, and you can experience that new life. And what is true in life is also true in our walk with God. Growing old is never optional in life. If you've met enough crazy 30-year-olds who still live in a home where, like, growing up is optional, right? And even in our spiritual life, we need to understand we have this option before us as to whether or not we will grow up. We'll grow old in life. We'll pass on from this life. And we may never choose to grow up because we haven't crossed this threshold of vulnerability and self-confidence that will lead us into mutuality of giving and taking in the community. And Peter wants us to grow up. Peter wants us to grow up into this. And when we commit to becoming a part of this holy habitation, living in sort of anxious anticipation of all that God is going to do in the future, we are actually committing to growing up. We're committing to saying, I do want to grow up in my faith. I do want to develop in my faith. I do want to become vulnerable enough to become a part of others and letting them into my life. And I do want to overcome whatever self-confidence is holding me back and letting these gifts out. And I want to let those gifts out. And I want to let them shine and sing in this world. And why do we let our gifts out? Why do we allow this to happen? Because we aren't the only ones who are searching for this holy habitation. We aren't the only ones who are looking for this holy habitation in our world. And so, yes, it's important to allow the ministry of other people into our life through vulnerability, but it's equally as important to let our gifts out because others are looking for this habitation. Others are looking for a way in which they can become a part of that. And every time we choose to let our gifts out, we allow others into this space. We invite others into this space where they can find belonging, where they can find growth, where they can find transformation. And that's why Peter, in verses 6 through 8, starts describing the way that this sacred building interacts with the rest of the world. Yes, it's a holy habitation for God, and yes, we're creating this so God can dwell amongst us, but Peter describes in verses 6 through 8 the way this building is set up for the rest of the world. Some have accepted it, some welcome it in, Others have rejected it and pushed it away. But everyone in the world must engage with this holy habitation. Everyone has the opportunity to engage with it. And this holy space will be engaged with in some level. And that then leads Peter into the very final part of his section here. Listen to how he builds this up into verse 12, starting in verse 9. But if you are a chosen race, if you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own people, in order that you may what proclaim you are all of these things you are this holy habitation so that you may proclaim to the world the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light and what exactly is the content of your proclamation what are you saying what's what's in there he goes on in verse 10 once you were not a people at all 
You were not connected at all. You were like a bunch of stones thrown on the side of the road or that fell off the cart as it was coming down. But now you are a people. You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And how do you exactly offer that proclamation? Well, here's how you do it. It says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens, as exiles, to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. And instead, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. What Peter is saying right here is that it's through your acts of proclamation, not your words of proclamation, that the church becomes the place where others belong. It's what you do, not what you say, that helps others become a part of the church. And the way that Peter will set this up in verse 12, the way he'll continue to speak about it in the next few sections, and we're going to look at those next few sections over the next few weeks, he offers this powerful corrective on a world, world that is obsessed with words, on a world that is obsessed with saying the right things, opposing the, or putting on the right face in front of other people, instead of actually doing the internal work, right? We can say all day long, we're, we're a group of people with open arms and open hearts and open minds. That's fine. But if we don't act upon that, if we don't have that as a part of our actions, we need to show others that. We need to show others the way that we do this. We need to act in that particular way. And in order to act that way, we have to become keenly aware of our neediness. It gets back to mutuality. Something that often happens in the context of the church, and I see it in communities of faith all over the place, is that we'll get into a space where we have received the grace of God and we just sort of live under that assumption over and over again and we forget our need for the grace of God. We become so action-oriented, so giving, so giving, so giving, so giving, that we forget that we need to receive. And when we forget, and this is an interesting thing, when we forget our own need in our life, we very quickly become a group of people who are blinded to the needs of others around us. Oh, I'm fine. Why would you be? Why would you have a problem? I'm, I'm good. I'm okay. And very quickly what that becomes is this, an assumption on other people that everybody else is okay. But if we choose to live in a constant state of mutuality where we are dependent solely on the grace of God in our lives to receive over and over again and to open ourselves up to receive that grace and to receive that forgiveness and to receive that renewal and to receive the growth and to receive and receive and receive and receive, we will very quickly be the type of people who also dish that out to others around us, who open up our hearts to others around us and say, I have need too. I, I bet you experience the same thing. I can, I can identify with that in a beautiful way. It's this mutuality that comes out. And you know, going back to my camping illustration, besides just enjoying being homeless for a while, another really amazing thing about camping is how much mutuality is developed there. If you've ever been camping, you know this. You, you meet people that you never thought you'd meet. They come over to your tent. Your kids are hanging out together. They're from different parts of the country, right? You're sharing hot dogs and all kinds of other stuff that you've got. There's a mutuality that's developed out there because everybody recognizes they're in a home away from home and they need each other in order to survive in that environment, right? I mean, that's what it is. It's like, oh my gosh, I forgot my soap and I borrow yours. I forgot my towel, whatever. You know, like I, I forgot something. And we're always engaging with each other in this beautiful way. And it's because we have a heightened awareness of what we 
need and how we can provide. A heightened awareness of receiving and giving. And in our lives, this is the space that we need to occupy, this cycle. In just a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to leave this place. I'm going to invite you to enter into the world and to use Peter's biblical language. I'm going to invite you to go forth and proclaim the mighty acts of God to all who you come in contact with. God who brought you out of darkness and ushered you into light. That's what I'm going to invite you to do, to go out into that space. But before I do, I want to invite you into a place giving yourself over to God so that you can just receive from God for a few minutes. There's a need in your life and in my life to give all of who we are over to God and just receive his mercy for whatever we're going through. Yes, it's important that you go and you act. Yes, I will get you there. <laughs> but before we get there, we need to be reminded of the way in which God died for us. God gave his life for us. And not only did he give it for us, but we're in desperate need of the gift that God gave to us, even now, every day of our life, to receive in that way. To give up all the things, as Peter says in the beginning, to give up the malice and the deceit and the hypocrisy and the envy and the slander, to give all that up and just receive God's mercy in those spaces. To release all of that over to God and to receive back what he would have for us. And when we give all of that over to God, God will then use that process for the benefit of others around us. And so the praise team's going to sing this final song, and the ushers are actually going to serve us in this final song to receive the tithe and offering. And I'll invite you to give in that way, to give in worship in that particular capacity. But perhaps more than that this morning, I want you to dig a little bit deeper to ask yourself, what are the things that I need to give over to God right now? Besides just my tithe and offering, I, I can do that and I offer that God as an act of worship, maybe as a symbol of worship before you. But what are the things in my heart that I need to turn over to you, God, this morning so that you can use me in the world, so that I can receive your mercy, and I can receive your grace, and I can be transformed once more in that space? Because when we submit our lives to God, God will indeed use our lives for the sake of others. You stand with me this morning. Gracious God, I thank you so much for the gift that is your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we give ourselves even in tithe and offering this morning, God, we go beyond that to give to you all of the things that we hold in our hearts that keep us from your mercy. We give to you this morning all of the things, God, that have kept us back from growth, from mutuality, from engagement and belonging in the community of faith. We give those things over to you, God. And we open ourselves up in that process of fully receiving your mercy, of fully receiving your grace, of fully receiving your love for us. So bless us in our giving this morning, our giving of our entire selves. In Jesus' name we pray.